The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let's ask God's help again. Father, we ask you to do the speaking. to come by your spirit to enable both the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying. That we might rightly honor you and Christ our Lord. For it's in his name we ask it. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 will be our text this morning. We'll read verses 1. Through three, this is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. We must receive it as such. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. All God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. So we have spent our last, I believe it's six Lord's Days together, morning and evening, considering together this worthy walk, this pattern that matches the, the worth and the dignity and the weight and the beauty of God's infinite glory, this glory into which we ourselves have been called. And I told you when we first considered that, that word, it was a picture of a balancing of scales. You've got the weight of the hope to which you have been called on one side. Then the question is, do you walk in a way that matches that? Or is your whole life horribly imbalanced? And so surely by now you've almost without trying memorized these five markers of this kind of life. That it begins with humility and gentleness and patience bearing with one another in love and finding yourself eager to maintain this, this bond that we have, this unity that we enjoy. And we've taken our time each week trying to define, not according to the world's standard or our own ideas, but each week trying to define or come to an understanding of the definition that the Bible provides. What do these words mean? Humility is that spirit-wrought disposition of the heart that has comprehended this infinite glory of God and that rightly sees everything else in the world, especially himself and his own reputation in light of that. We then consider together gentleness. This is the way in which a humble heart interacts with the world around us. It's a picture of power and strength under the control of the Holy Spirit. Then last week we considered together what is patience, true, biblical, Christ-exalting patience. Scripture makes clear that this isn't an, an apathy or a resignation. It's not an acceptance or, or simply an assumption that life is never going to get better. That this is as good as it gets, what we have right before us. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It, again, is a heart that is seen and trusted in the hope of glory. The glory and the honor and 
the immortality that God calls us to strive for. We've seen these things not just as something we've conjured in our own imagination, not the thoughts and desires that we have come up with, but the things that God himself has promised, desires that he has ingrained in our very DNA, and then promises that he's secured by his own name. And so this patience is a waiting, yet it's a waiting in joy, joy and hope-filled confidence that we're, we find ourselves so confident that we don't grow angry or anxious or upset with the circumstances in which we find ourselves or the people that we find ourselves waiting with so that we, we don't ever feel that we need to take matters into our own hands, try and capture these promises from God according to our own ways in the flesh. Nor do we need to settle for the lesser promises, the false treasures that Satan and the world hold out before us. Instead, we just joyfully run this race of faith. And during great suffering, again, through circumstances, through situations, through sickness, through storms, through finances, and through sin, trusting that God has a great purpose in every single moment of the waiting and every single ounce of the suffering, that he's working something out in us right now here and through all of this. So I, so I guess this morning, before we move on to this fourth point, I would, ask you to, I would ask you to notice how ordinary these things are. Be kind and be humble and be gentle and be patient. To be sure, these are things that are utterly impossible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the grace of Christ given to his people. Completely impossible for a man to be truly gentle and truly humble and truly patient like this unless he's been redeemed and born again, strengthened in his inner man. But the reality is these are not the kind of virtues that capture the headlines. What Paul's calling us to be here is not someone with great rhetorical cleverness. He's not calling on us to be the kind of people that have this, like this theological brilliance that blows everybody away. He's, he's not talking about a man with the kind of personality that really knows how to, how to draw a crowd and, and lead men off into battle. Before Paul even gets to celebrating these gifts that Christ has given us in these specific men that he has called into the church, talking about the evangelists or the, the prophets and the apostles and the evangelists and the teachers and the, the preachers and all the rest. Before he talks about these peculiarly gifted and called men in the church, he first says, do you know what this body most fundamentally needs? He needs you people to be humble and nice and kind and gentle and patient and bear with one another. Do you understand how different this is from the way most men try to build a church? Men spend thousands of dollars and countless hours trying to figure out what bullets to fire and what levers to pull. Convinced that if they can just acquire the right skills or the right talents or, or surround themselves with the right people, if they, can, if they can implement the right programs, then it's almost just like a vending machine. You push A, you push B, you push C, and boom. Out pops a thriving, healthy, growing church. But what does God actually call us to? He, he says, just entrust yourself. Commit yourself and your people 
to these ordinary means of grace. Just trust me when I tell you that if you will just give yourself over to an all-out dependence on the sufficiency of God's Word, under the power of God's Spirit, to transform God's people from the inside out, if you would say more than brilliance, more than cleverness, more than power, more than great leadership, what we need more than anything else is to be humble and gentle and kind and patient, to bear with one another and to fight for the unity that we've been given. And do you understand how freeing that is? He's not calling you to be superhumans. Again, utterly impossible apart from the Spirit of God. But, but he's, he's not calling you to some unheard of gift. He's not calling us all to be some, some great headline grabber. He's saying, be gentle and kind and humble. And watch what happens as I build together in that place a mature and well-grounded church. I will make you into a faith family that is unshakable and unbreakable if you would just commit yourselves to this. What a blessing. We're not out here trying to figure anything out. We're not trying to make anything up. We're not trying to pave our own way and chart our own path. We're just trusting what God has said. This is the church he's building. So he says, I therefore... Prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, I've taken these things and, and we've worked through them one by one, and we've got to be careful whenever we start inspecting the trees that we don't miss the forest. And we've also, I think, got to make sure that we are not arbitrarily separating these things one from another. So I don't think that what Paul is giving us here is some strict sequential order. I don't, I don't think he's saying you strive and you accomplish or you, you achieve or you receive humility and then at some point down the line comes gentleness and then someday you'll attain patience and then the ability to bear with one another in love. That, that doesn't seem to be what he's giving us here. However, I do think it is absolutely true that we can't come to this picture. We must not come to this picture and treat it like a buffet where we, we take the things we like and we leave the things that we don't. Or that we might come to this picture and say, okay, I'm the humble guy, just not the gentle and the patient guy. Or I'm the patient guy, just not the gentle guy that bears with others. Do you see? He's telling us that we are to strive for all of these. And the reality is that I've found in my own life and I've found it proven to be true in Scripture that whenever I am lacking in one or the other of these things, whenever there's a, a particular weakness in one or the other of these things, all the rest of them suffer. Psalm 73, 6 says, Therefore pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. It is the pride that leads to the violence. Isn't this the same kind of thing that James points us to, James 4? He says, What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So what I know to be true from my own life is, whenever I have trouble being patient with others, 
whenever I'm not long-suffering, whenever I have trouble bearing with one another, whenever I find myself not being particularly gentle with my wife or with my children, almost inevitably, invariably, what I find is there's pride that is flared up within my heart. This, this is a package deal. This is a well-rounded picture of who God has called us all to be. And so as we move to this next phase, and, and, and I've told you, I think that as we move from humility to gentleness to patience to bearing with one another, I, I think the pictures get a little bit easier to see. We're going from an inward posture to a way we relate to one another to something I think here with bearing with one another in love, maybe a little more practical, a little more visible, a little, maybe I could even say easier to define. But I do want to take our time to consider what he's saying here when he says, bearing with one another in love. So if you've memorized this or you, you continue to read from the King James translation, you know that it says forbearing one another in love. So we ask ourselves, what does this word forbearing mean? Now, this, this word that is translated bearing with, it's only found 15 times in the entire New Testament. And sometimes it just means the endurance of something that's unpleasant. It's almost a synonym with patience. We hear it used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4.12, he says, when persecuted, we endure, we bear it. 2 Thessalonians 1.4, he says, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring, bearing. See how close it is to patience or to long-suffering. Something bad is happening. There's an affliction that's come your way and you endure it. You bear it. If we look in the Septuagint, that's the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we find that same word used with regards to Job and the way that he endured his great suffering. He bore with it. He walked through it, bearing with it and enduring. It's used in the negative of God's weariness with regards to man's empty religion. Isaiah 1.13, he says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure. That's the word. I cannot endure. I cannot bear iniquity and solemn assembly. So he's saying, I, I, I can't bear this stuff anymore. I can't tolerate it any longer. I can't endure it. Take it away from me. We, we see the same word used of Jesus in, in all three of the synoptics after he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. One of the real high points in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ is he pulls back the veil to his flesh and reveals there to Peter and James and John that glory that had always been his. And you remember how they come down the mountain and there was a man there with a child and the, the disciples had been unable to, to care, for the, care for the boy with the unclean spirit. So Jesus said to them, I quote from Mark 9, verse 19. Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. So we see in the life of Jesus, as with the father, it's a sinless Frustration that expresses this cry of, how long am I to bear with you? How long will I continue on with you? How long will I continue to be here while you express this faithlessness, this doubt, this inability? And yet he endures them. So the question we might ask then is, but, but how? 
If, if this is an endurance of sinful and weak and failing men, how can a holy, holy, holy God ever do such a thing? Isn't that contrary to his nature? Isn't everything in God repulsed by evil? So much so that he can't, can't even look at it. Can't even stand in his blessed presence. How then can God bear it? How then can God endure it? Well, if you look at Isaiah 42, verse 14, we see the same word used there. Very helpful, I think. Isaiah 42, 14, he says, For a long time I've held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. That's the picture. I have restrained myself. God was bearing with man. Not that he was delighting in man's sin. Not that he was winking at man's sin. Not that he was endorsing man's sin. Not that he was excusing his faithlessness. What he says here is, I am patiently withholding my wrath. The wrath that you all deserve. And yet in my patience and in my long-suffering and in my forbearance, I continue on with you despite your rebellion and despite your sin and without any guarantee that you will ever turn. And, and so I want to show you something that I think maybe the English translation might cause us to miss. It did, it did me until I really took time to begin preparing this sermon. But, but if you read that word in English or that phrase in English, bearing with one another, it, it may sound as though the one being influenced by the bearing. That what we're talking about here is an action that I'm taking that's primarily meant to influence you. It's prior, primarily meant to affect you people. And so this, this bearing is all about changing you and shaping you and affecting you. Now, when we're talking about God, that's absolutely the case. God isn't changing God. God doesn't change. God cannot change. We wouldn't want God to change. And so when we see the, the noun used for this same word, forbearing, when we see that noun used in the New Testament, we see it of God only two places in the book of Romans. We see it in Romans 2, 4, where it says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness was meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The same word is then used in Romans 3. Romans 3.25. God put Christ Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. So we see one of the ways in which God has restrained himself despite the rampant sin of men. He's, he's delayed the pouring out of his wrath to the appointed time. For one group, for the elect, for his chosen people, those sins would be poured out upon his son. He had passed over them for a time, and then the time came. For those who were not, for those who will continue on in their sin to the very end, this time, this forbearance, is only a means by which they store up for themselves greater wrath. So God's patience does not come to the same end for everybody. His forbearance doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. It means exactly what he designed it to mean. It reaches his appointed end every time. So when we're talking about this forbearance of God, absolutely, it is meant to influence men. 
But when we're talking about our forbearance, we're talking about our bearing with one another. Just grammatically, the way that the word is used is presented as an action or a posture that we take that most fundamentally has an effect on us, not the other person. That's why A.T. Robertson defines it as holding yourself back from one another. I'm acting upon myself, not upon you. Now, to be clear, this action that I take, this posture that I take, the work that I put into bearing with you, it may well affect you in the positive or in the negative. But that can't be the primary focus. That can't be the main point of my bearing with you. Otherwise, I miss the picture. My primary concern has to be, God, what are you doing in me through this forbearing? What good are you working in me through this frustration? Because if I become consumed with, how does this affect you? I'm going to give up real quickly. So I want you to think with me through this. Some, some scenarios where we see this kind of thing playing out, or we might see this kind of thing playing out. You, you realize that there are, there are some scenarios, there are some situations where the people of God must bear with one another because there's been an, an offense or a frustration or a pain, and it's not tied to sin. It, it's not tied to a transgression. No one has broken the law of God. I think we may be, the only picture I seem to find in Scripture was maybe with Paul speaking to the Corinthians, defending his apostolic integrity, where he says in 2 Corinthians 11, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. So he's calling them to bear with him as he explains who he is and he defends his authority as an apostle. But regardless... I think whenever we realize that what God is doing in this place is he is taking living stones, stones that still need some chiseling, stones that still need some shaping, but stones nonetheless that he is fitting together perfectly into this house in which he will dwell. Whenever he puts these stones together, there is guaranteed, there is zero chance that we're not going to get on each other's nerves, at least to some degree. This is the case in every single family. Every single actual biological family and every single faith family, we're going to rub against each other. We're going to bounce into each other. Oftentimes, because there's already a wound there. Is there anything worse than when you've got some gaping wound on your arm from an accident and somebody else unknowingly, not sin, not intentionally, they just brush past you. And the offense comes and the pain comes and there's been no sin. And so what do we do then with other people's Quirkiness, other people's weirdness, other people's unintentional offenses that are not classified as sin. What's the answer? Well, the answer is straightforward, but it's not easy. You bear with them. You bear with them and you overlook it. Because the minute that you start trying to, to force your preferences upon your brother, the minute you start trying to, to shape them or to mold them or to exert force, or pressure upon them, as I said earlier, to, to mold them into your image of what they're meant to be, then you cease being humble and gentle and patient. That's not forbearance. And perhaps more dangerously than that, what you may well be doing is trying to put yourself in the place of the Holy Spirit. What you might be doing is trying to impose your will upon their conscience. Because oftentimes, again, these aren't matters of sin. These are matters of the conscience. 
And so while the word of God under the spirit of God is meant to form that in a man, you might seek to insert yourself in there to domineer and to shape and to pressure and to form. This is dangerous business. But there are times. I, I try to think of a percentage, and I don't think it's safe. I don't think we can do that. I don't think I can figure out how much is not sin and how much is sin. Probably it's a futile exercise, and we'll just lead to all kinds of madness. But we do know there's times when it's just, you're just weird, and I'm just weird, and we're going to get on each other's nerves. Andrew, don't smile that much when I say that. We're a weird bunch. But then there's times when it isn't just quirkiness and it isn't just innocuous disagreements. And it's not matters of opinion, but rather it is legitimate sin. I want you to consider the Apostle Paul's parallel to this morning's text in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Something that we find Paul doing here in the beginning of this section of Ephesians is he's, he's not talking about the taking off yet. He's not talking about the things that we're meant to shed. He's here. He's talking about the putting on. And I, and I appreciate that because I find that in the life of so many believers, they're, they're, they find themselves in all kinds of frustration because they know everything they're not meant to do, but they don't yet know who they're meant to be. Okay, I've cleaned out the house. Now how do I decorate it? What do I fill it with? So the, the put on here is very direct parallel to what we're seeing in Ephesians. So he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is the therefore Ephesians 4. Put on, why, how, what? You're God's chosen ones. You're holy and you're beloved. What are you to put on? Compassionate hearts. Now, this isn't an, a purely emotive thing. There's one word for heart in, in the New Testament. It's cardia. This isn't that word. This is swanknon. It's a cool word. It means your bowels, your guts down here. Saying put on a compassionate or merciful guts, heart, your inner person. Kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Sounds like all the things we're finding in Ephesians. Here we go though. Verse 13. Bearing with one another... And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So you've got an offense or you've got a complaint between brothers. And we're not talking about those types of over-the-top, grotesque sins that would require immediate removal. This isn't 1 Corinthians 5, the dude having his forget it's his dad's wife the stepmom don't kiss your stepmom or we will kick you out of the church immediately kind of thing right it's, it's not that but it, so it's something less heinous than that but it's a real sin it's, it's a real offense and it's a real sin nonetheless and so what happens is in many churches they approach these things with nothing but just a, a permissive attitude they don't confront the sin but they don't forgive the sin either. They just don't do anything. And so the thing's just out there and everybody knows that it exists. And it becomes like the trash can in your kitchen that's full. And everybody just keeps adding to it like Jenga, hoping the thing doesn't fall over because they don't want to have to deal with it. 
Or it becomes like the husband who hears the baby crying at night and he fakes like he's asleep. So praying with everything in him that his wife will get up and deal with it. Can't, somebody, can't this be somebody else's job? I'll tolerate mountains of trash. And I'll lay here and fake sleep rather than just getting up and doing the right thing. So the NASB translates our, our Ephesians text. Translated as showing tolerance for one another. And, and like technically, I don't know enough Greek to judge somebody else's translation. The NASB guys are good. That's good. That's a right translation. I believe it. I'm sure of it. But I don't prefer it. And, and here's why. Because when we hear the word tolerate one another, we just think, I'm just putting up with it. I'm just tolerating a mountain of trash in my kitchen cabinet or my trash can. I'm tolerating the, the baby crying down the hall. I, I tolerate Brussels sprouts. No offense, Santa Claus, but they're gross. <laughs> you, you tolerate stuff and you're willing to hold your nose, right? You're willing to hold your nose and just put up with it. And, and the reality is, far too many churches, that's as far as they get. They just tolerate each other. They just have this peaceful or, or at least this non-combative coexistence. And that's the best they can offer. Remember the, the picture, the fresh picture of frustration that I painted last week that we must avoid at all costs. I'm running my race over here. You just go run yours somewhere else. I'll see you in heaven. And then maybe we can be friends. But for right now, you go there and I go here and stay out of my way. And while it may not be that overt and that obvious, it happens. It happens by not spending enough time together to annoy each other. It happens by not being transparent and open and honest about who you are. It happens by keeping everything at just a, a surface level. We can all sit in a room just like this and all just be running solo races. But that won't do. Now, tolerance may be the word. There, there is an endurance here and there is a suffering here and things are difficult. But the word in love at the end of this thing completely changes the whole tone of all of it, doesn't it? I don't tolerate the trash in love. There's something much more that, that's happening here. So that believers in a family like this, we can't just tolerate each other. We've got to be filled with love. And, and, and love in part is, I'm thankful you exist and I'm thankful you're here. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see you. And love practically means I'm going to do whatever is necessary, whatever is ultimately best for the other person. This is so much more than just coexisting. It's, it's helping each other run well, like we said last week. Remember 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, as we urge, excuse me, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Everybody doesn't need the same thing. Love doesn't look the same in every relationship. There's admonishment, there's encouragement, there's help, there's strengthening. But to all people, you be patient and forbearing. And so there's a, there's a picture God's given us, right? We don't have to, again, we're not reinventing the wheel. We're not writing our own rule book. 
The Word of God has told us how we're meant to deal with these things. Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So you don't get to go tell it to anybody else. You don't get to sit around and stew on it. You go to your brother and you tell him what they've done. And maybe the guy has no clue. Maybe you've completely misunderstood the situation. But whatever it is, you're making the assumption that that brother wants to be right by you and by God. You're assuming the best about them by coming to them and saying, this doesn't match who I know you to be, or at least who I know you desire to be. So I'm coming to you in love and I'm bringing this to your attention. So you go and you tell the brother about his sin and then you pray with everything in you. Don't just pray in the moment, you pray beforehand that the man will repent and that the relationship will be restored. James points a pic paints a picture of this for us. James 5, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Do you ever think of confrontation like this? Has there ever been a time in your life when you brought sin, an offense to the attention of your brother, and you viewed it as, I'm bringing you back from wandering. I am saving your soul from death. I'm not talking about how it's going to be received by the other person. It may feel like death to the other person. But I'm asking, have you ever had a heart like this? This is love. You see, there's a contempt that masquerades as forbearance. It looks like this. Someone sins against you, and under the guise of Christian charity or love, you never talk with them about it. You sure talk with other people about it. And you sure think about it often. And it remains there as a wall of offense between you and them, always there and always affecting your relationship. That's not forbearance and that's not love. And what you will most often find is what happens is eventually this trash builds up. The baby's crying becomes too much for you to bear. And you finally respond to the wrong things in the wrong way for the wrong purposes. Instead of having dealt with the right things in the right way with the right motives. And instead of calling your brother back from the brink of destruction and saving his soul, you're just wounding the guy. You're just kicking him when he's down. So there's, there's a totally different word for bearing. And I'm not saying it, it has any, the concept has a, has a great relationship to what we're looking at here. But the word is, is different. But it's found in Galatians 6, verse 1. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Love gets involved. Hatred says, I'm going to watch you drown because I don't want to get messy. And I like my reputation too much for, to have you thinking badly of me. So love gets down and it says, let me carry this burden for you. 
I'm on your side in this, brother. Don't you understand? You're running the race of Hebrews 12, and I see there's something around your neck, and there's something entangling your legs. Can I help you untangle it? Even if that means I carry some of the weight, and even if that means that I walk along limping for a while with you, and even if that means that you don't like me in this moment, even if this means that you never know this side of heaven, the love that I've just expressed towards you, I'm getting involved. That's the picture. So, so you go to your brother. Just continue on this thought experiment with me. You, you go to your brother. You bring the offense to his attention. And as you have prayed, he receives it. He recognizes it. And he repents. You forgive him. You're obligated to forgive him. Now restitution may be necessary. This doesn't mean there's no earthly consequences. Depending on what kind of thing we're talking about, there's, there, there might be consequences. There's, there might be, again, restitution that might be necessary to be made. But as far as the offense between you and the brother, it is done. It is buried. It is gone. You never bring it up again. Remember, we're forgiving as the Lord has forgiven us. So not only do we never bring it up again, but every time the devil trots it back up and tries to plant it in our head or in our heart, we put it to death. Now, it may be putting this thing to death a million times a day between now and heaven. But this is a picture of love. We read 1 Corinthians 13, and, and, and rightly so, often at weddings, but forgetting that this isn't primarily a picture of marital love. It's a picture of brotherly love within the church. And he says, love is patient and love is kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. Now, now I, I poo-pooed on the NASB for saying tolerates, but I think it gets this one better because that's what I do. I pick and choose the translations I like. That's what sound preaching is all about. <laughs> but the NASB says, that love does not keep a record of wrong suffered. I'm not keeping score here, friend. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. And again, it's not easy. It may be a dogfight in your heart and in your mind for the rest of your life. I find myself reading a lot of C.S. Lewis these days, and he says that everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. Or what your previous pastor said, Robin would stand in this place and say, if you've never struggled to forgive, then you've never been wounded badly enough. So, that's the picture of the prime scenario. That's the hope. But I don't know that that's the full picture of forbearance that we are seeing here in, in Paul's letter. Forgiveness is part of forbearance, but think about it. You've been able to voice your offense. The other party has owned it and they've asked for your forgiveness and they've repented and they've stopped doing the thing. They've repented and turned away and won't do again the thing that you've called them back from. Therefore, the weight or the burden or the frustration, they're gone. Right? G generally speaking, it, it, it's gone. 
And so you're not having to bear anything in the moment. The offense has been removed. Now, if the brother does repeat the offense, the same sin over and over again, then yeah, there is a forbearing there. There is a bearing that's necessary. That's why Jesus told Peter, look, how many times do you forgive? Not seven times. How about 70 times seven? As many times as it takes. And praise God for this because when Jesus came down and he witnessed the faithlessness of his disciples, that wasn't the first or the last time. When he says, how long must I bear with you? The answer was until the end. So yeah, there is a forbearance necessary when they continue to return to the same offense and to the same sin. And there's absolutely a forbearance that is necessary if you go to your brother you bring him this offense, and instead he curses your face and treats you like an enemy. And you realize that Scripture has called you to bless them and pray for them, to do good to them. Now we're getting in some forbearance. Now we're getting into some carrying some weight. But consider a different scenario. What if your brother sins against you, and after prayerful consideration, you determine that what love demands... What brings glory to God and does the best and most ultimate good for that brother is that you simply bear it. That you forgive them without ever saying a word. Now, I know that there are cases when forgiveness isn't really altogether possible without a conversation and, and without repentance. But I genuinely don't believe that it's always the case. Number one, because we're always sinning all the time. There's never an interaction we have where you or I have been perfect in this. And so every time I've got to call you to the carpet and demand that you utter words of repentance and, and beat yourself and beg for mercy. But also if we consider that we are called to forgive the way the Lord has forgiven us. Beloved, do you really think that you know every single sin for which your Lord has forgiven you? You think you're going to get to heaven and his register is going to match yours? Think again. I'm fully convinced that I will stand before him on that day and find out that there were moments that I thought were the crescendo, the high point of my obedience and honor and service to him. And he's going to say, think again, bud. If you could have seen your heart and you could have known your motives. So what types of things are we looking at here? What about if the immediate damage to the sin is limited to you? There's not like some threat. We're going to talk next week about threats to the unity within the church. And there are a few things the New Testament warns against and rails against more than those things which might disrupt or destroy the unity within a church. Sowing discord is an absolute abomination. But we're not talking about that. Talk about a sin between us. The offense goes no, no further than me and, and there's not been any material harm to anyone else. Can I not just give up my right to be offended and forgive you? What about if the facts of the case are less than clear? And, and maybe there's some reasonable explanation and I can just assume the best about you. I can assume there's some facts about the case that if I knew them would explain this thing away. We'll clear up the whole thing. And I know enough of your character to know there's a really good chance that that's the case. Again, 
The offense isn't widespread. It's not destroying the church. There's no, not going to be any kind of lingering problem here. No one is being materially harmed. So I'm going to assume the best about the other person knowing, absolutely knowing, that just because I'm, an, I'm offended, that doesn't guarantee that a sin's actually happened. That's a thing that needs to be learned far and wide. Offense does not always equal sin. Number three, if you do know the surrounding circumstances and you know that this brother has just acted out of character, this isn't some besetting or recurring sin in their life. This isn't some destructive pattern. Again, nobody's being harmed in some ongoing way. You know about the offense. They may not even yet be aware of the offense. And you just bear with them. Forgiving them without a conversation, without confession, overlooking it, without ever bringing it up again. Now there's ditches on both sides. I get it, right? There's the contempt for your brother masquerading as forbearance where you never deal with anything and you just allow him to burn himself and everybody around him to the ground. You watch him charge hard into the pits of hell, never thinking enough or caring enough to get involved. Then there's those people that just surf Facebook trying to catch somebody having two beers on a Friday night so they can call them to the carpet. The guy's always walking around with a chip on his shoulder looking for an offense. And your heart might tell you, yeah, but okay, but what if? What if I miss here? What happens if I miss? What if I don't go to somebody and I don't deal with the sin and then they keep on sinning? They come back to the same thing. Remember, this is mostly about God molding you. It's mostly about what God's doing in you and how he is building this church. And if we all assume this posture, then I'll trust the Holy Spirit to deal with that man. Carrie and I were, were talking through this, this Greek word yesterday. And I don't remember if it was him or, or me, but we, we thought about the, the picture of Peter with the risen Lord on the beach after breakfast. And you remember that Peter says, yeah, what about old fast leg John over there? He's, he's, Cause he's told Peter, you're gonna, you're gonna die. This is how you're gonna die in service to me. John 21, he says that when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. He's my servant. I'll do with him as I wish. You're following me. So surely you see there the endurance that is necessary. Now it's almost painful at times because you don't get to let the other person know how bad they've hurt you. You don't get to let them know how foolish and how weak and how immature they've been. They don't get to know how mature you've been because you overlooked the offense and never brought it up. You don't get to do that. God, I hate it when people come to me. I forgive you. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> For which thing? Oh, I just don't even talk. I just want to let you know you're forgiven. Thanks. It's impossible. The thing I'm calling you to is utterly and completely impossible. Unless you love them. 
unless you love the person. One of my extended family members was in a, in a, in a crash yesterday. They're cool, they're fine. Car's not, they're cool. They're in a crash, and it was, it was 100% their fault. They owned it. This was my fault. Not only have I been in a crash, but I've hit somebody else, and I've damaged their vehicle. I get there, and I'm feeling sorry for him. I'm so sorry. 100% your fault. You're at fault here. And I feel so badly for you. Of course I care about the damage and I check on the other person and all of this, but, but I'm, I'm concerned for you here. Do you see it? I love you and I'm bound to you and I'm, I'm tied to you and I care for you. Now, let me be clear. It wasn't my car that was hit, so that was real easy. But I tell you that the other woman's husband showed up and said the same words. Without love, you're not going to do this. Certainly not going to do it well. And, and I think that this is what Peter had in mind. He's seen the Lord's forbearance with him, the long suffering and patience with him. But 1 Peter 4, 7 to 8, he says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, the, the picture of the ultimate covering on sin runs all throughout redemptive history. What did we see in the garden with Adam and Eve when they first sinned and recognized their nakedness? We see God making provision to cover them. The word for atonement means in the Old Testament Hebrew to cover, to covering. And we know that God has made clear all throughout that through the blood of a perfect substitutionary atoning sacrifice, namely through the giving of the life of his son, Jesus Christ, he has removed and covered and taken away every last offense. Obviously, you can't do that. You're not called to do that. It was a once and for all sacrifice, not to be repeated. So I'm not saying that you atone for your brother's sin by covering in love, but I'm saying as ones who have received that covering ourselves, ones who have been forgiven like that ourselves, isn't there some type of reciprocal mercy and forbearing and covering that we owe one another? A willingness not only to not bring out the offense, a willingness not only to try to uncover and to... to to, to make seen everyone else's sin, but in love to cover them up, to remove them out of your sight and out of the sight of others. So I think I've got a good picture here, but I'm not convinced yet. I don't normally just try stuff out on you, but I'm going to show you a picture and I'm going to leave it up to you to spend some time. It's your homework this week to consider whether or not there's a picture of this scene here, okay? I want you to think with me about the time when Noah got drunk and passed out naked in his tent. That was sin. Having, we don't know how long, I mean, it took long enough for his vineyard to grow, I reckon, and the grapes to ripen and everything to ferment. But he was on the boat. He had both heard the voice of God 
seen the wrath of God and experienced the unprecedented mercy of God. Eight that survived amongst millions, billions perhaps. And what does he do? He falls into sin. Genesis 9, verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. To honor a man like this, at his lowest point, he is not there to defend his honor. He is not there to defend his name. It is not possible for him to repent in that moment. He lays there drunk and naked while one man goes to grab the others to say, come look, come look, come look. While the two others say, we won't look. Not only will we not look, we will cover. Verse 24, when Noah woke up from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Do you have any idea how long-reaching the consequences of this event were? Go ask Chuck McKeon, he will tell you. We spent weeks talking about this, how the lines of these families influenced the whole of redemptive history. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servants. Beloved, what did I say to you in the beginning? This forbearance, this bearing with one another, it's an act that you take that is most directly effective on yourself. It's about what God is doing in your life, regardless of how the other person responds, regardless of how it influences them. And believers, I'm telling you that if we would commit ourselves to a life like this, under the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be a church like you have never seen. God would be glorified, and we would be blessed. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for the way that you bear with us. Having, having not only atoned for and covered our sin by the all-sufficient blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, you still continue on with us as we return to that same slop, treating us as sons and not servants, as children and not enemies, never casting us out, never putting us away, calling us to honor and glory rather than shame and contempt. Father, would you give us a heart like this towards one another? We plead it. We ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.